Antigone is an ancient Greek play by Sophocles. At the outset, the eponymous character, daughter of Oedipus, is grieving for her brothers who have fallen in war. Oedipus, if you may recall, had accidentally killed his father and married his mother, fulfilling a prophecy from birth, wound up blinding himself in grief when he found out. Freud had this whole thing about it. Anyway, in the wake of Oedipus's self-exile and eventual death, his two sons fight for control of the throne and wind up killing each other in battle. Fulfillment of another prophecy, by the way. The new king, Creon, declares that the rebellious son, Polynices, must not be buried. Instead, the body must lie in the fields, a sweet treasure for carrion birds to find as they search for food. Cruel. But Antigone, the sister of Polynices, defies the law and buries him anyway. Brought before Creon, she declares, all your strength is weakness itself against the immortal, unrecorded laws of God. Creon is unrelenting, sentences her to live out her days in a tomb. And you can guess the ending, several characters die, including Antigone herself, the fates loom large, etc, etc, etc. Today, what does a Greek tragedy have to do with the trial of humanitarian volunteers in the borderlands of southern Arizona? I'm Joel Elliott, this is Polarities. It's like eerie. You're looking at such a vast piece of land. Like it literally just keeps on going, like looking at the ocean. But like, yeah, you can see the mountains at the very end, but you don't even see where like it meets the ground. And so it's like definitely beautiful, but there's literally nothing there. I think that it just like really hits you. That's Zachila Orozco McCormick, a 21-year-old volunteer with No More Deaths, a humanitarian organization based out of Tucson, Arizona. On the morning of August 13th, 2017, she set out with three other volunteers. So we take the truck. It's like a huge truck. Load it all up. The four volunteers were driving onto Cabeza Prieta, a wildlife refuge in southwestern Arizona that runs right up against the Mexican border. At 800,000 acres, it has the largest designated wilderness area in all of the continental United States. Among other species, the refuge is a protected area for the endangered Sonoran pronghorn sheep. And we, like, drive a little ways. Our plan was to, like, drop water as we went and, like, get as far as we could. Eventually, they drive down a steep, rocky dirt road, and they get out near the bottom and grab these gallon jugs of water. I think that I was carrying, like, six and then one in each hand. They're, like, awkward. You can't really, like, comfortably fit six gallon jugs of water into a backpack. So the four of them begin walking with these backpacks in temperatures that eventually reached 43 degrees Celsius, or 110 Fahrenheit. You're, like, literally dripping. And then there's jumping cactus, just, like, balls of prickly thorns. It will get attached to you like no other. You don't even notice it. They finally reach their destination, which is... It's kind of like a tree, but not really. It's more like a bush with no leaves. About the closest somebody walking in this area might find to anything resembling shade. So you set down your bottles, and then what happens? You kind of like automatically go quiet. Um... While the refuge was created to protect pronghorn sheep and other wildlife, the four volunteers are here for other endangered lives. The migrants who cross this area on a daily basis. And describing it as sacred is definitely accurate, but I feel like... Not that you don't belong, but, like, what you're doing is nowhere compared to, like, what other people have done. You mean, like, you've just walked a, a very short sample size of what migrants would do? Yeah, I think that you're just kind of, like, in awe of how... You know when you get that feeling of, like, you're so small and the world is so big? 
like I will never know what it's like to cross the Sonoran Desert, regardless of the reason. I don't think that we really have a right to talk about what a person's experience is crossing the border when we will literally never be put in that position. These types of trips are nothing new to No More Deaths volunteers. In fact, water drops take place on a daily basis. But on August 13th, after the four women returned to their vehicle, an event happened that may prove to have major repercussions for humanitarian aid workers. Well, we walked back to our vehicle, and there was a car parked next to it. A person, like, comes out, approaches us. This was the local fish and wildlife officer. We greeted him. He asked us if we had identification, and we said yes. He asked us what we were doing out there, and we told him. So the officer asked him, where's your permit? And when they tell him they don't have one, he asks why not, and they explain. We weren't going to sign a piece of paper that said that we weren't going to leave food and water because that didn't feel right. Members of the public are restricted from being on the designated wilderness area of Cabeza Prieta without a permit. But as Zachila notes, the permit had recently been changed to include a clause prohibiting leaving behind food, water, or other, quote, property. This, along with blacklists of specific volunteers, appears to have been targeting no more deaths directly. After stopping them, the wildlife officer took their remaining food and water supplies back to the refuge office, took photos of them, then allowed them to load the supplies back in their truck. So we did. He, like, waited for us to do it and then watched us leave. That was literally it. Hmm. Like, no mention of a ticket, no mention of any sort of, like, follow-up, no mention of anything. So when did the actual follow-up happen? Four or five months later, I was in Mexico with my mom visiting my family, and I was long gone. And we received, um, we were served a summons. The four women were charged with two federal misdemeanors. Abandonment of property and entering a national wildlife refuge without a permit. And this wasn't the first time No More Deaths volunteers have been charged. It's happened a lot, and each time we... It's like a glorified littering ticket, literally. Abandonment of property, you know? Most of these cases would proceed in a rather predictable way. Volunteers would refuse to plead guilty, and then the judge would throw the case out. But this time... The case wasn't thrown out, and on two misdemeanors, the defendants were facing up to six months in prison. And this January in Tucson, the case finally went to trial. To prosecute aid workers for their efforts to save lives in the midst of a massive humanitarian aid crisis on our borders is to fundamentally miss one of the most core conservationist values, the sanctity of life itself. In a sense, the trial would not be one case, but two cases in parallel. So when the DA, Anna Wright, gets up to make the prosecution's opening statement, she tells the judge that their team will establish that these four defendants knowingly went into the refuge, knowingly left behind a, quote, cache of supplies for, quote, illegal aliens. Then the defense attorney, Christopher DuPont, gets up and doesn't dispute or even really address that claim at all, but brings out a map. And it's a map of the wildlife refuge with dozens of red dots scattered around between two mountain ranges. The map comes from data put out by the Pima County Coroner's Office. And Pima County encompasses both Tucson and the area southwest of the city, all the way to the border and west of the Cabeza Prieta Refuge. And the coroner has reported that in the years between 2000 and 2017, 2,816 remains of migrants have been found. And that number itself is probably very low and would still be a fraction of the total remains found along the entire U.S.-Mexico border. The collecting of the numbers itself is complicated for various reasons, mostly because remains can get scattered or lost quickly and may never be found but also because Border Patrol doesn't maintain collated data on migrant deaths. For instance, if bodies are found by volunteers or ranchers or anyone other than Border Patrol, they don't get counted in the official tallies. 
but the number of dots on this map might serve as a more dramatic illustration of how deadly the desert can be. There's 183 in total, and that's just the number of deaths counted in the Cabeza Prieta range alone. An area vast in scale if you're walking through it, but a relatively small fraction of the borderlands. To look at it in person, even on scales of only a few kilometers, the dots almost blur into an indistinguishable red blob, particularly concentrated in one area along the west side of the Growler Mountains, a valley of death that grimly traces a heavily trafficked path of migrants through this area and the same area that no more deaths volunteers were leaving water on August 13th. Even in terms of an already deadly desert, the Cabeza range is special. And part of the reason why is the same reason that the volunteers are ostensibly being charged. As one fish and wildlife officer testified, the mandate of a wilderness refuge is to maintain nature in a condition as primitive and undeveloped as possible. But the same factors that keep the desert so untouched are also what make it so deadly. Somebody walked through here. Somebody walked through there. there. Both ways though. A four-legged or two-legged? Both. Looks like a big dog. It's a doable? Yeah. You think those are migrant tracks? I'm not sure. Yeah. Well, footprints going a couple both ways for a while. It's difficult to understand the real scope of this trial and the work of humanitarian volunteers here without actually physically going into the desert. I'm in an area known as the Aravaca Corridor, about 10 miles north of the Mexican border. It's a lot closer to Tucson than Cabeza Prieta, but once you turn off of Highway 19 going towards the border, it becomes nearly as remote. This is the area where some of the first migrant deaths in southern Arizona were tracked, before they began to appear further and further west. It's a difficult place to describe. It feels both teeming with life and barren at the same time. Every animal and plant that does manage to survive a triumph in the face of an unforgiving sun. Inside this lovely paradise, you know, it, it has a secret. 3,000 people have died here, 2,000 are missing, and no one seems to know anything about that. It doesn't make the newspapers. That's Alvaro Enciso, a retired anthropologist and artist, originally from Colombia. You also heard Ron Kovach, another artist and retired academic, and a local journalist, Brian Jabez Smith. Every week for the past five years, Alvaro and Ron have hiked up to several miles each trip to plant crosses for one of these 3,000 migrants. As we drive along the highway, before we turn off onto what could only be very generously described as a road, we look at Ron's GPS, where there's dots that represent migrant deaths nearly blot out our view. You can see those red dots on each of the crosses that Alvaro plants each of which is homemade and adorned with objects left behind by migrants in the desert. So this is where we are, this triangle here. These are all the These black are triangle. All the is... black triangle that you see it moving. That's us. That's us. And the range is? Three, three miles. Three miles. So it, literally within, you could see these spots like on either side of us as we're driving, right? Yes. Basically. I mean, we have put crosses right by this side of this road here. There are two parallel tragedies here. One is that migrants die in the most remote areas, miles from roads or civilization. And the other is that occasionally migrants die along a major highway or just outside of a city. How does someone die this close to a highway though? They could get hit by a car uh, if they're traveling at night. First of all, if, you're, if you haven't had water and it's 100 degrees or more, and you're, you're starting to go, you go kind of crazy when you're dehydrated and, and your body begins to fail. So you could be wandering around aimlessly 
The GPS coordinates come from the Pima County Coroner's Office, which also lists cause of death, if known. It'll say, if they know cause of death, then it might say blunt force trauma. Some have been gunshot wounds. Hanging. Two have been hangings. I was talking to the medical examiner and he feels that they are suicides. You feel so miserable, so, you know, that you want to end your life because you know that you're going to die, so why suffer needlessly? But there's only so much information I can get on here. Um, Often it says unidentified person undetermined cause of death. But sometimes, you know, we play like detectives. If you're near a road and it says blunt force trauma, good chance that you got, somebody got hit by a vehicle. Sometimes the stories told just by the location of death can be harrowing. We, uh, we have put crosses a hundred miles from the border, a lot of them. That means that they, they walked from the border all the way to Interstate 8, which is the highway that goes to San Diego. Right. Someone told me that you need about a gallon of water a day just to survive. A gallon of water weighs seven pounds. Right. How could you carry water for more than two, three days? You know, and you know that is, is it, you know, if everything is going well, you know, it's border patrol helicopters chasing you, uh, horses and. ATVs and and then uh, at night, you know, you fall down a cliff and you break a leg and then you're done. The blister on your foot can be... Yeah, blister on the foot can be the end of you. Alvaro and Ron are volunteers with Tucson Samaritans, the earlier sister organization to No More Deaths. And this litany of horrors is what gives their work such a strong sense of urgency, even a religious devotion. Incidentally, both organizations are affiliated with churches in Tucson and can be traced back to the same leaders involved in the original sanctuary movement of the 1980s, when local religious leaders decided to give safe harbor to migrants from El Salvador who were being denied asylum by the United States. We always begin, we always begin all of our events with a moment of silence, remembering people who are out in the desert now, people who have perished, and people who are anticipating crossing. In fact, this church, Southside Presbyterian, is where it all started. Uh, John is the former pastor of this church. And the Reverend John Fife, who is at the center of that movement, is still active today. In all kinds of border work uh, since... That's enough. For a long time. In the beginning, folks dying out here in the Sonoran Desert crossing the border was a brand new phenomenon. It had never happened before because everyone who migrated back and forth across this border migrated through the urban areas of the border. It was the easiest and safest place to cross. That pattern abruptly shifted with a policy change under the Clinton administration. And then suddenly, the United States began to unveil in 1994 this border enforcement strategy that said, we're going to seal off those urban areas from migration by building 18-foot steel walls and quadrupling the number of border patrol agents and adding technology and helicopters and, and everything they could throw in terms of enforcement and militarization of the border into those urban areas. The policy was called Prevention Through Deterrence, and a government report from the time at least hinted that those who wouldn't be deterred by the blocking off of urban areas had one alternative. They're going to try to go around, and that's precisely what happened. It took a few years, but eventually the effects of this deterrence policy began to be seen, albeit not in the number of illegal migrants, but something a lot more grim. About 1999-2000 here in southern Arizona, they began for the first time to uh, find human remains out here in the desert that had never happened before. So John and others from the sanctuary movement 
sat down to try to figure out a strategy to save lives. And the answer was pretty simple. Most of the death out there is from dehydration and heat stroke. Uh, and so we needed to put water and food uh, and take emergency medical care out to the desert. Religious belief is hard to escape when it comes to humanitarian activism here in the desert. Walking miles in the heat, leaving water for those lost and wandering, equal parts sacrifice and sacrament. The symbolism is impossible to ignore. But more than just a moral justification for the actions of the volunteers, religious belief became a key legal defense as well in the case of Zachila and the No More Deaths volunteers. And that's because of a law known as the Religious Liberty Restoration Act, RIFRA as we call it in the trade. That's Catherine Frankie, a law professor at Columbia University. And RIFRA was signed in 1993, ironically in the very same term in which prevention through deterrence was being implemented on the border. And what it does is it says that if you have a sincerely held religious belief and that the exercise of that religious belief is substantially burdened by government action, that you cannot be punished for exercising that religious belief unless the federal government has a compelling state interest, that it is furthering through that policy, and it is accomplishing that state interest in a way that burdens religious liberty or religious exercise in the least restrictive ways. The government has a pretty high burden to show that its interest in enforcing the law against you in this particular case is um, compelling and that there's no other way that it can perform that compelling or further that compelling interest that is less burdensome on you and your religious practice. Basically, the government has to have a good reason to stop you from doing something that your religious convictions tell you to do. But the idea of religious convictions trumping the law has a pretty radically different set of associations for most people in America. After all, the most famous case to rely on RIFRA was the Supreme Court case of Burwell versus Hobby Lobby stores in 2014. There was a Supreme Court case on this Hobby Lobby where the ownership of the company um, were evangelical Christians, and they said that including coverage for contraceptives in their employee health plan substantially burdened their religious beliefs. Catherine argues that the case didn't properly consider RIFRA as a whole, not because evangelical Christianity isn't a legitimate religious belief, but because of an important modifier in that clause, a sincerely held religious belief. Well, it turned out that they had actually been deployed by the Koch brothers, these right-wing libertarian business people, to mobilize a kind of fake religious liberty claim in order to attack the Affordable Care Act, which was the federal law that required inclusion of um, contraceptives. And in fact, before the Affordable Care Act was passed, the company had included coverage for contraception in their employee health plan. So that would be something relevant to sincerity. In Catherine's view, the case was more about political mobilization against the Obama administration's health care policy, and not primarily about religious belief at all. And the court's mistake was in jumping straight to forcing the government to prove it had a good reason to enforce the contraception clause. They just said, wow, all right, government, show that you've got a compelling interest and that it's narrowly tailored. The court ruling determined that the government may have had a compelling interest to provide contraception to the public, but mandating that the store provide it wasn't the narrowly tailored or least restrictive way to do it. What I found interesting and really ironic about it is that the U.S. government has pledged to protect religious liberty as one of its top priorities, yet it only protects the religious liberty rights of right-wing people who are otherwise politically in alignment with the Trump administration's policies. In the case of the No More Deaths volunteers, the question of sincerity seems a lot more straightforward. After all, dragging gallons and gallons of water out into the baking desert sun on a regular basis doesn't sound like an activity for the half-hearted. But what about religiosity? And what's the connection between beliefs and aiding migrants? The defense called up Reverend John Fife to the stand, and he told the court this story. As a rabbi colleague of mine uh, said a long time ago, John, in the entire Hebrew scriptures and the Torah, uh, God only tells the Hebrew people 
once that they have to love their neighbor as their self. He said, that's because God knew we could get that. But God says 37 times in the Torah, you have to love the alien in your midst as though that alien was a citizen. Uh, because remember, you were once aliens in the land of Egypt. God says that 37 times, and the rabbi told me that's because God knew we'd struggle with that one. For Zachila, her beliefs are less tied to a specific religion than they are a general respect taught to her by her parents, one of whom immigrated here from Mexico himself, about the sanctity of life, but also the sanctity of death. That we all are on this like one plane and that we all have like one thing in common and that's we're like all gonna die, you know? I feel like that's something that should be respected. It should be respected and people are not being respected at the border. A lot of secular people might agree with that sentiment too. It's difficult to break out of our conditioning, which sees religion in an institutional way. But court rulings on RIFRA have been clear on one point. And what they've been very clear about is that you don't have to go to a church on Sunday. You don't have to be a recognizable member of a, of a congregation. Your religion or your religious-based beliefs uh, do not have to look like one of the Abrahamic traditions, Christianity, Judaism, or Islam. What is religious? And particularly when you're talking about the No More Deaths volunteers, how do you argue that that's religious and not, say, secular humanist? Well, it's a complicated test, and it's in many ways a difficult one for the court, but it's not impossible. So uh, many courts have thought this difficult question through of how do you differentiate, say, a deep philosophical or moral belief from one that's religious. You can have a much more holistic set of beliefs, even ones in which you hold the earth to be holy or nature to be holy. These activists, each of them have individually testified to the, either a sense of the holiness of the human, the sanctity of human life, or the importance as a, an expression of their faith of coming to the aid of people who are on the edge of death or are, on, are in circumstances where their death uh, is likely if they don't get help from these activists. Certainly the prosecution, it seemed like they were engaging with the defendants by trying to argue that they had no particular religious belief. Right. Clearly you can't pretend that they're Christian, but what do you make of that argument? That's an interesting argument because the very basis for my faith is none of us, <laughs> none of us are perfect people of faith. And what they were doing was uh, trying to question the testimony of the defendants that asserted in court, yes, I'm out there as part of an organization that is faith-based, and I have my own clear spiritual and religious reasons for being a part of that organization that is clearly grounded in faith and scripture. That was a tough argument, I think, for the government to make, <laughs> especially uh, under the circumstances of what were those people doing? They were providing life-saving water and food out in a place where hundreds of people have died. That last point brings up the other side of No More Death's work which is not only about exercising a right, but fulfilling an obligation. This philosophy was outlined back in the sanctuary era of the 1980s. They even coined a term for it. We called it civil initiative. Civil initiative. Back when the movement was coming together, John first adopted the age-old practice of civil disobedience. The idea, first formulated by Henry David Thoreau in the 1800s, was that if a law was immoral, it was one's moral duty to break it. But a lawyer friend told him he needed to make a different case, that it wasn't the movement that was breaking the law, but the United States. You remember when German generals and government administrators were on trial in 1946 at Nuremberg? The vitals of this trial's mad and melancholy record, which will live as a historical text. They, they were charged with violations of, of human rights and crimes against humanity for the Holocaust and their own responsibility. And their legal defense that they mounted was, we were just following the law of Germany. Or in the case of the military officers, we were just following orders. Who was merely an innocent middleman transmitting Hitler's orders without even reading them, 
like a postman or a delivery boy. Now, this may seem like a fantastic exaggeration, but this is what you would actually be obliged to conclude if you were to acquit these defendants. Up until 1946, that had been the highest standard, legally, that anyone could be held to in a court of law. But it was the United States prosecutor, Supreme Court Justice. That's Robert H. Jackson. Who was the chief prosecutor at Nuremberg who argued to the court, that's not the highest standard, the law of Germany or the orders of the German military. If you were to say of these men that they are not guilty, it would be as true to say that there has been no war, that there are no slain, that there has been no crime. There is a higher standard to which all of us are accountable, and that higher standard is international law and human rights. And the Nuremberg Tribunal bought that legal principle, and the Germans were convicted of crimes against humanity. Hermann Wilhelm Goering, the International Military Bureau, sentences you to death by hanging. As for the U.S., well, the country is bound by both the UN Convention on Refugees as well as its own laws. Any person has a right to come to the U.S. border, present themselves to a U.S. official, and say that they want to make an asylum petition. The U.S. government is required by U.S. law and by international law to then go through a process of, of assessing the credibility of their claims for asylum. What the U.S. government is doing is basically saying our doors are closed. The other thing they're doing, uh, which really relates to the No More Deaths activist work, is they're discouraging people from crossing at a, the official ports of entry where there are customs and border officials where they can actually go to the border patrol officers uh, more easily and present themselves. And instead, they're being forced to cross in more dangerous places, having to cross through dangerous deserts and put their lives at risk in these incredibly dangerous locations. So even without the religious defense, the activists' more secular argument is that their work is upholding both U.S. and international laws, laws that the U.S. government is neglecting. So you kind of flip the script a little bit instead of expressing it as a, a negative thing in regards to the law, it's actually a sort of a positive reinforcement of a law. It's not, not only positive, it's a mandate under the law. But the law as it's practiced, from the U.S. Attorney General's office all the way down to the everyday border patrol agents, has been trending towards a much harsher and more punitive approach to humanitarian aid along the border. Sometimes it spills over into a level of shocking cruelty. On the second day of the trial, after hearing testimony from members of the Fish and Wildlife Department who work on Cabeza Prieta and some volunteers with no more deaths and Tucson Samaritans, the first defendant, Una Holcomb, took the stand. And the defense submitted this video. So you get a good shot. Pick up this trash somebody left on the trail. It's a video that comprises seven years worth of video evidence. Um, these were located at water drop sites. That's No More Deaths media coordinator Justine Orletsky-Schnitzler. The video and accompanying report was released in January of 2018. And in the video, you see clip after clip of Border Patrol agents. Engaging with the aid, dumping it out, jumping food out, leaving it for animals, slashing water jugs. And in one of the videos, actively engaging with a humanitarian, you know, uh, kind of baiting her and asking her, you know. It's not yours, is it? All you have to do is tell me, is it yours? Not yours. You're not going to tell me, huh? Who are you with? Who are you working with? What are you doing? Uh, very antagonistic. While Border Patrol has insisted the actions of the agents was an aberration and not the norm, the report detailed over 400 bottles of water vandalized over a three-year period. On the stand, Una testified that she'd witnessed firsthand Border agents destroying aid. But it wasn't always like this. For years, Tucson Samaritans and No More Deaths had an understanding with Border Patrol and the state attorney general. The organizations wouldn't interfere directly with the prosecution of illegal migrants, and law enforcement wouldn't stop the organizations from providing aid. While the two groups were always at cross purposes, this arrangement seemed to work for a time. It's really changed 
not only with administrations in Washington, but it's changed with sector chiefs in the Border Patrol. Uh, when we began in the year 2000, we sat down with the sector chief and said, we're gonna be providing water stations out there. So we'll give you the locations, the GPS locations of each of those water stations if you agree in the interest of saving lives not to put electronic or human surveillance on those sites so that, that we can assure migrants uh, that if they find one of those water stations, uh, they can safely approach it to save lives. And he agreed. But a new sector chief a few years later canceled all agreements. No more deaths became the subject of regular surveillance and disruption. It reached a peak in 2005, when two Tucson Samaritans volunteers were arrested while taking a migrant in critical condition to a hospital. Which his predecessor had all also agreed was not a crime. And the federal judge who was hearing that case threw out the charges because we had had an agreement previously. In every case, the organizers prevailed in court or won on appeals. But opposition to these organizations continued, particularly with border agents routinely destroying humanitarian aid. So we put motion-sensitive video cameras on some of those sites and caught the Border Patrol in uh, vivid color, doing that kind of destruction of humanitarian aid and, and gave it to the media and the press. And they suddenly wanted to negotiate. The vandalism against humanitarian aid was drastically reduced, and Border Patrol stayed away from No More Deaths Camp in the desert. The organization had played hardball with Border Patrol and seemed to have won. But then the tide shifted again, and this time, the shift was nationwide. And then there was an election in the United States in 2016, and the slashing of water bottles resumed, and more threats of arrest of humanitarian aid workers began to increase out there in the desert. In April 2017, the position of the new administration was crystallized when then-Attorney General Jeff Sessions visited Arizona and made a public declaration that they would begin prosecuting not only illegal aliens, but also those who were deemed to be aiding and abetting their migration and to announce new guidance regarding our commitment at the Department of Justice uh, to criminal enforcement of Im our immigration laws. Federal prosecutors are now required to consider for prosecution the transportation and harboring of aliens. As you know too well, this is a booming business. Nevertheless, in July of 2017, just weeks before the four volunteers were found on Cabeza Prieta, Members of No More Deaths had sat down with a representative from the Attorney General's office, along with other government officials, in which the attorney claimed the office had no interest in prosecuting. But for the judge, in this case, the lack of a written statement or even specific verbal promise not to prosecute negated what could have been an entrapment defense. Still, the meeting was just one of the ways in which these organizations attempt to work with the authorities and within the bounds of the law though it seems to be increasingly impossible to do so. What, what do you tell volunteers in terms of these kinds of legal challenges or potential problems that they may encounter? Does a lot of this go into how you train your volunteers? Somewhat. I mean, we, you know, we're not unknown to Border Patrol. I think that's important to say. Like, none of the actions that we take as humanitarians are hidden or shrouded in secrecy and are happening, you know, trying to sneak under the radar of the law. So to that end, people take informed risks coming out with us. That is part of the job, unfortunately, and, and the volunteering process. But we continue to operate pretty much the same way we've operated for as long as we've been around. So we inform folks, we let them know, um, we inform all volunteers about the ongoing cases and what they mean. But your average person coming to volunteer with no more deaths is not assuming this kind of risk. Margot Cowan, the attorney who runs a free weekly legal clinic for undocumented migrants, also trains volunteers in the law and dealing with border patrol. We have a perfect record, I'm proud to say, of 38 not guilties, no more deaths in the SAMs versus the United States of America. The United States of America, zero. So you have a legal team that will get your back. So let me tell you what the law is. 
It's against the law to aid and abet, to harbor, or to transport. But here's the most important piece of the law, in furtherance of illegal presence, okay? So giving people information so they can make informed decisions is not in furtherance of illegal presence. Giving them food and water is not in furtherance of illegal presence. A major argument of the prosecution was that all of these water drops and aid work was unnecessary. The pillar of this argument was the presence of about 10 rescue beacons on the 800,000-acre area of the refuge, erected by Border Patrol. These are towers with flashing lights and either a button or phone that directly contacts Border Patrol, who can show up with water and medical assistance. But the evidence for their ineffectiveness has been mounting. Well, as I understand it, those beacons are a bit of a joke. They're very difficult to see. They're often in a kind of arroyo, meaning a kind of a wash or a lower area or hidden behind rocks. Uh, you have to be standing in a particular space or vantage point to them to see them. But I don't think those beacons actually exonerate the federal government in terms of leaving people in an extremely perilous situation. It's actually difficult to measure the efficacy of these beacons. It's been four years since Border Patrol released any data at all. And even then, in the Tucson sector, they recorded only the number of migrants rescued via the beacon, not how many times the beacons were actually activated. But realistically, even if they were easily accessible with quick and reliable response times, the fact remains that migrants, who already risk so much to cross the border, are unlikely to make use of them when they rightly suspect that doing so will result in their deportation. The efficacy of the water drops by no more deaths is also difficult to measure. The number of deaths in the desert has remained more or less consistent over the last decade or so. But the number of perilous crossings following the ramping up of border security and fencing is also rising. So it might just be a matter of not having enough resources to stem this tide of death. One thing is clear, Counter to the prosecution's depiction of these organizations as cavalier lawbreakers, their reliance on data and logistics is rather remarkable. It's taken years for them to map out trails and properly organize water and aid drops. This was the first camp we put up in the summer of 2004. All we knew, this was an area in which migrants were pouring through. This is Ed McCullough, a retired geography professor and one of the founding members of Tucson Samaritans. His role in figuring out the logistics of mapping the migrant paths allowed the group to transition from a more passive form of aid to a more active one. He was brought in to testify about how his maps of migrant trails, collated with the coroner's data on migrant deaths, helped no more deaths in their work, including pointing them towards the growing danger of the Cabeza Prieta Wildlife Refuge in particular. And so we, we started out just wandering this area, and we kept running in the trails. We're looking at the trails on Ed's computer, squiggling through southern Arizona, crisscrossing and terminating where the desert meets small towns and major roads. And it was obvious, you'd, unless we had some sort of map, everybody was just going to go out and get lost. Did people <clears> get <throat> lost in, in the beginning? or? Yeah, they didn't know where they were. Well, the biggest thing, they'd go out and they'd see something, and they'd come back and say, well, I found this trail. And you'd say, where is it? And they'd say, I don't know. It's over there yeah. somewhere. And it was, it, that's we not were, enough. first few days, it was just chaos. Yeah. And that, that's when I decided we needed to start mapping. And I started, uh, I think this was probably the first trail. And how do you map it? I mean, do you just have a good GPS? This is a handheld GPS. Okay. And uh, it tracks where you are. You can follow a trail with, and it's got a tracking program on it. And I'd walk along and uh, see a trail, and then I'd just follow it north, north and south and map it. And when you get home, you download it to your computer, and the trail shows up. It's okay. really, really simple. Well, but it's very accurate. At the worst, you're looking at uh, plus or minus 50 feet. But in, in many cases, it's uh, just plus or minus a few feet. These trails are then used to organize water drops. You see, this is the pattern of movement. Mm -hmm. And so what you do is you just draw, find a road that crosses here, and every place that that road crosses a trail, you make that a water drop. And that's what we did. Not only are all these trails rigorously recorded, but all water jugs are marked with the date and location and then picked up again. 
to make sure the water is being put in the highest trafficked areas to best serve migrants. We left 10 jugs, and you come in uh, a week or so later, and there are four jugs left. Well, something's happened to six of them. If the six are all gone, our assumption is that the migrants have taken them. If you've had 10 there and there's four when you get there, sometimes you'll find two that have been been slashed. Uh, that, that's like an, an average number? No, uh, it, we lose about 20%. Wow. Of the water. Too. And that's from Border Patrol? Uh, you, no, one, no one saw it happen. But we do have pictures of Border Patrol doing that. But approximately 50, 60% are, are being used, well, consumed we, on a weekly yeah, basis. We have something like 60% of the water we think is being used by, by migrants. Yeah. It's a pretty good success rate, I'd say. I mean, that's... Oh, yeah. Uh-huh. It could be far worse. The data-driven work of these organizations stands in pretty stark contrast to government agencies, which, despite the resources, lack either the will or the training to effectively deal with migrant deaths along the border. This is true not only of Border Patrol, but of the Fish and Wildlife officers who manage the refuge. The defense asked several officers what steps they take to help migrants, and the answer was basically nothing, despite the fact that one officer testified to finding multiple bodies himself. And in just a month before the four volunteers were caught, three migrants had gone missing on the refuge. Two were recovered, but the status of the remaining migrant was unknown. It's as if they're not humans. And again, I want to remember that the pronghorn sheep have greater rights in that space than do the migrants who are crossing that space, who are human beings trying to make asylum claims. They're trying to exercise rights protected under domestic and international law. And that, I think, is the criminal activity uh, that's at stake here, is the violence of our federal government against human beings who have gone through enormous hardship to get to the place where there might be water, there might be food that can save their lives. A lot of these volunteers come face to face with the evidence of this inhumanity on a daily basis. You know, it takes a toll to be, to deal with the dead. Well, you know, that's what we do. You know, we go to sites where people have died. Yeah. We found the body, what, what was it, August, the first week in August? August 7th. Uh, shit, it was right in, you know, in, the, in this open area, man. Yeah. Alvaro found her. We had planted a cross on top of a hill for a person, and about halfway or so to the car, he says, it's a body. So, I, I stood over the body because I can get the exact coordinates to tell the deputy. She was reduced to a skeleton where the bones had not been bleached. So she was dead for 10, 15 days, maybe. It doesn't take long, and in August it's hot, and the critters do their job. The, the vultures, you know, the vultures eat very well here in, in, in southern Arizona, man. So the skeleton was complete and it was small. And to me, I have a grandson that's 10 years old that looked like maybe the size of my grandson. And I thought it, if it's a child, I re, it was really affecting me in a way that made me very emotional. And um, so I asked the deputy to, to let me know if they could I- identify this as a child or adult, a man or woman. And uh, he called me back that evening and said it's an adult woman based on the teeth and hips. And I don't know why I would feel differently that it's an adult or a child. It's right. But I, I, somehow I felt that way. And, uh, you know, I remember the shoes. That's what I remember more. Like a hiking shoe, but a fashionable hiking shoe. Red and yellow and blue. And she bought them for the trip or something. And they were brand new, man. Fuck. That was, you know, the end of the American dream right there.
Several miles from any major road, our path has become so narrow that mesquite trees are violently scraping along either end of our car as we look for the site of one of those red dots to plant across. See, they don't grow high because they don't get enough water and they don't provide shade. So, you know, nothing in the desert provides shade, you know. Are we cutting distance? Yeah, we're going, doing well. Between the off-road driving and the long hikes, sometimes planting one cross can take an entire day. But today, we're relatively lucky. It's gonna take you right to it. Really? Yeah. Oh man, so they, we're not gonna give these guys it, the walking Hey, you're experience? the one who's relieved, man. <laughs> How old are you now? 73. You look great. You can out-hike most people and get a walk away. Please close the windows. I'm in, I'm in the range, but it's jumping around a little bit. We'll stop for a moment and let the GPS... We're 10, mi 10 and 3 quarter miles from Mexico straight line. And uh, the migrants know that there's a paved road 30 miles from here and they have to get there and usually they get picked up there if, if the arrangement works. So they have to do this piece of walking which takes three, four, five days. Okay, Jorge. Como seis pulgadas para abajo oh. y como así de un poquito más como por aquí de ancho. Okay, so I'm gonna put the cross and then you pour the concrete around the cross. Okay. I can't believe you carry concrete all the way out to these places. Yeah, I mean, man. You must have to walk miles and miles. It appears, you see, like so magic. It <laughs> it's like magic. This is like a magical act. All this shit appears oh. when we get there. All of the courts are different. The only thing that, that makes them a part of a project is this red dot here. It's always an, on a cross. That red dot is comes from the map. So what I'm doing is taking an abstraction, a map is an abstraction, and bring it where the actual tragedy occurred. And this is a tragedy that has a lot of ramifications. You know, this person had a name and a life, and this person is missing from a, a family, from a village. It'll be an empty space forever. This is the opportunity for you to reflect on your, on your own losses, you know, the losses that you have had in your own life. Every time I go to this place, I grieve my failed two marriages, you know, my dead grandmother, you know. I was in Vietnam when my grandmother died, so I couldn't go to the funeral, you know. All of these things affect me in some way. So that's why I do this, because I'm part of the same migration, you know. I was one of the lucky ones who came by plane and found the American dream, you know, or pieces of it. These are things that I collect in the desert. Alvaro is showing us some of the materials he uses to construct the crosses. Labels, bottle caps, tinfoil food wrappers. Yeah, all the pieces are from pieces that you found. Yeah. I including the red dot, right? Yes, yes. Everything is collected here, but transformed in a way that it loses the, uh, the uh, repurposing materials. If you remember, the cross was used by the Roman Empire to kill people, to kill criminals, false prophets, right. enemies of the state. And what they did, they built these crosses and hanged those people out there in the sun without any water until they died. This is what we're doing here. Four humanitarian aid workers are now facing up to six months in prison for entering an Arizona wilderness preserve. The religious defense prayer. never seemed to hold up. The prosecution argued that the defendant's religious beliefs amounted to little more than a watered-down version of the Golden Rule, 
and Judge Bernardo Velasco seemed to buy their argument, finding the defendants guilty on all counts, though the sentence was reduced to $250 fines and probation, a verdict with more meaning symbolically than the actual punishment conveys. Were you afraid for yourself? I mean, obviously for a while you didn't know what the sentence would be, right? Yeah, um... No, not really. I don't think that I ever felt any real fear because I think that fear would have been associated with guilt and I don't think that I felt guilty of doing something that I knew wasn't wrong. Hmm. You know, I will not let anybody make me feel guilty for leaving food and water in the desert. In Velasco's verdict statement, our old Greek heroine made an appearance. After the defense was briefed very thoroughly, by the defendant's lawyers and by a group of law professors who are experts in religious liberty law. And the judge said that really all that they've done is raised what the judge referred to as a modified Antigone defense. Catherine co-authored, along with other legal scholars, an amicus brief, which is when someone with no formal involvement in a case provides some relevant information to the court, often, as in this case, additional legal expertise. And the amicus brief disparaged, among other things, the language of the judge's verdict statement. Antigone is a uh, character who wants to bury her brother. And Creon, the king, says, I'm not going to allow that burial. I'm going to basically let him die in disgrace. And so the, the tension of the play is between the law of the king, or the law of the state, which says no burial, and the law of the gods, which requires a burial. Now, What's outrageous about this is that we have a statute. We have actually the King's Law, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that the court needs to reinterpret in order to, to make a decision about whether the defense in, that was raised by the defendants in this case is legitimate or not. So there's no conflict between God's law and the King's Law in this case? Not in this case, no. This is a, a new idea that this judge came up with and hopefully will be easily disposed of on appeal. The judge had an obligation to read the law, you know, for in the favor of the defendants or not, but not to make an offhand reference to Greek plays. It's just insulting, really. One of the things I find interesting about it, though you, you may disagree, is that I think that story is kind of analogous to what's happening in a way. I mean, what volunteers like No More Deaths do is reveal deaths that the government may rather keep hidden or keep secret. And a lot of what Antigone is about is that giving her brother a, a burial when the state would rather let him die and be forgotten. Well, I think part of what's at stake in both of those contexts is the dignity of the human body and the dignity of human life. And part of what No More Deaths activists are motivated by is a concern for that dignity of the migrants coming across the southern Arizona desert and a sense of horror at how the United States government cares not at all for the dignity of these human beings. You can particularly see this demand for dignity in Alvaro's massive art project of planting hundreds of crosses rendering something visible that would otherwise remain hidden. And in the end of Sophocles' play, the King Creon has a change of heart, albeit not before Antigone has taken her own life in the tomb. From the perspective of these volunteers and activists, it's hard to see a bright side. But Reverend John Fife has a somewhat different perspective, and it comes from his own trial for smuggling migrants back in the 1980s. We were providing sanctuary for somewhere over 13,000 Central American refugees and their children during the period of the 1980s. And the government charged a real bunch of desperados. There were two Catholic priests and three nuns and myself and the director of the Tucson Ecumenical Council as criminals. Uh, and we were convicted in 1986. But the trial raised so much public awareness of the plight of Central American refugees that the government eventually caved to public pressure. And they agreed to stop all deportations to El Salvador and Guatemala. Uh, they agreed to give everyone here temporary protected status, that's documents, so that they could live safely. And we eventually won. So in that spirit, and this is another very 
religious or Christian question in a way is, do you welcome this prosecution to a certain extent? I mean, do you see that as a way to win in the long term? Yeah, that's been the process through every movement for social change that's ever occurred, whether we're talking about women's suffrage or we're talking about the right to organize in a union or whether we're talking about the civil rights movement. That's always been the pattern, hasn't it? In the beginning, governments try to criminalize that conduct. But what happens is people see the blatant absurdity of criminalizing uh, people who are exercising basic human rights. It is a, a major contributing factor in changing public opinion and public policy. Uh, and that's always been the process. But do you see that happening in, in the current administration? Certainly things look a little bit hopeless in terms of uh, pushback against border policy. Or do you find some hope anywhere? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All of the polls show that somewhere around two-thirds of the American people want to end this walls and militarization of the border and, and want genuine immigration reform to take place. So we're already winning. It's just that we have not yet achieved change in Congress and the uh, executive administration. But that's, I believe, to be inevitable. The stakes are particularly high for this case, not only in the field of public opinion, but also for future prosecutions. On the same day in January of 2018 that No More Deaths released her scathing report about the Border Patrol, another volunteer, Scott Warren, was arrested. Caught giving shelter, food, and water to migrants at a facility in the desert, Warren is facing a felony for harboring illegal aliens a charge which carries a maximum sentence of 20 years in prison. The initial trial resulted in a hung jury, with 8 out of 12 jurors voting to acquit. But the government continues to try to push through prosecution, seeking a plea deal or retrial in November. What do we know about this person? I didn't catch Nothing. 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 Frozen death. How do, how do they know they, the person froze to death? Right? Because well, of the time of the, the year. The time of year, we're assuming Winter. they were found at yeah. some, some yeah. point. Um, the coroner's office might know you could give them that number and they might be able to say. But, you know, sometimes they only find some bones, a bone or uh, maybe just the skull. I don't know. The date reflects when this person's remains were recovered. Not when the Not person died, just when, when they the died. remains were found. And we don't know the state of the remains. No. The grave Alvaro and Ron are digging now is for a migrant who remains anonymous, like nearly half of the bodies recovered to date. And without a name, families can remain forever in doubt about their loved one's fate. Que no nos lavemos las manos ante su condena, sino que caminemos junto a ellos y sus familias unidos por el amor, acompañándoles en su condena y muerte en la cruz. Amén. 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 People still say right on. They do say the right on? Yeah. You know? I grew up with that. Oh, really? Okay. But, but you don't hear things like groovy. It not was something groovy. groovy. Groovy did not survive. Did not survive the six. Nor did Far Out. Oh, Far Out. No. Some people may say, like, well, this person is in a better place. No, he's not in a better place. The fucking guy is dead. That's not a better place. Right. You know, fuck that shit. You know, he died because this government is closing the gates. This is no longer the land of opportunity. We have not been able to produce that iconic photograph that reflects the tragedy of what's happening here. You know, remember that photograph about Vietnam, the woman, the young girl running away from the napalm? Of course. That photograph. We have not produced that photograph here yet that can capture everything. Do you guys know how many crosses you've planted so far? 
uh, I keep for the last year I've been saying over 800 it's probably about 900 by now so you're maybe in the Tucson sector you said what 4,000 deaths since they started 3,000 3,000 3, so you're almost a third of the way there yeah but you know they keep dying every year so you never catch up right is that the goal though I mean eventually to no the the statement has been made, you know, we're marking these locations because, you know, I just don't have the, I don't have enough life in me to finish it. Recently, a photograph did emerge that seemed to fulfill that iconic role. A migrant from El Salvador lying face down dead next to his two-year-old daughter both of them drowned in the Rio Grande. But producing that iconic image, perhaps it's not the graphic horror that we might imagine. After all, so many are numb to suffering even within a rich developed country like the US. Maybe the most iconic image is the one that the Reverend painted. The absurdity of religious leaders and volunteers in court facing trial for littering in a land still fresh with 3,000 bodies. is written and produced by me, Joel Elliott, with additional assistance by Marco Avolio. The show is mixed and the music composed by Daffod Hughes. Our theme music is by Joyful Joyful. Additional recording help from Miles Miley. There are many ways you can help migrants who are in peril out in the desert, locked up in detention, or struggling to find the legal means to stay with their families. See the links in the show notes. You can also find us on social media, and if you like the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon, the little podcast that could. All links in the show notes as well. Until next time.